Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined by Elder J. Devon Cornish, a member of the Quorum of the Seventy and an Assistant Executive Director of the Church History Department. Welcome, Elder Cornish. Thank you, Ben. It's good to be with you. Also joining us today, we have Sarah Eyring, who works here at the Mormon Channel. She's recently had the opportunity to read Saints Volume 1, and she'll be sharing her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. In our episode today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 14. It's called Visions and Nightmares. And this is a, a rather interesting chapter because we have just that. We have visions, and we have some pretty difficult times facing the saints. Elder Cornish... Tell us about what the saints at that time called the vision, or as we know it, Doctrine and Covenants, section 76. Let's first think about the setting, Ben. This is early in 1832, February. Many of the saints are living in the Kirtland area. There are also saints settled in Missouri. Joseph and his family are living in the John Johnson farm home with John and his wife who have substantial space. And Joseph and Sidney Rigdon are much involved in the translation or the inspired revision of the New Testament. In the process of this, they're reading John chapter 5, verse 39, which talks about the afterlife and the outcome for the good and for the evil. It occurs to them that there has to be more to the story. Everyone isn't either really, really bad or really, really good. Right. So what about the rest of us? Let's listen to a little quote here from, uh, from the book that talks about the receiving of this revelation. On February 16th, Joseph, Sidney, and about 12 other men sat in an upstairs room in the Johnson home. The spirit rested on Joseph and Sidney, and they grew still as a vision opened before their eyes. The glory of the Lord surrounded them, and they saw Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Angels worshipped at his throne, and a voice testified that Jesus was the only begotten of the Father. What did they see in this vision? And it it happened over the course of about an hour, I think. So here they are in a room in the John Johnson farm. There are about 12 other people in the room. And as Joseph and Sidney are translating and pondering, they have this vision open up. Joseph says, I see, and then begins to say things that others can write. And Sidney says, I see the same. Sidney sees things and says, I see. And they write, and Joseph says, I see the same. So this is quite a remarkable event of other people, some of whom leave written accounts, observing this revelatory experience. They're having a vision and seeing the life after death. It must have been remarkable to be there. How is their vision of life after death different than what had previously been sort of conceived about that sort of afterlife? Now, this is a striking contrast. The predominant belief among Protestants in those days was that you either go to heaven or to hell, and that most all of us were going to hell. You had to be among the elected or among the uniquely virtuous and worthy to end up in heaven with God and Christ, and the rest 
were simply in hell. That was the predominant belief. In reaction to that, there was a small group called Universalists who had begun to believe and teach that God was so merciful and his power so infinite that one way or another he would find a way to save everyone. This vision is markedly different. It's neither of the above. It isn't an either-or, but rather gives to their understanding a God who is so loving and so merciful, and yet who is just in his commitment to our agency to allow us to actually make choices and to receive the consequences of our choices with the opportunity to believe in Christ, repent, and be forgiven. But there are a lot of people who anticipate this concept of choice and the concept of mercy and the overlay of their own willingness to obey in such different ways that it isn't an either-or. They come to tell us about kingdoms of glory, multiple outcomes. The celestial kingdom is varied as the stars in the heaven. Three heavens, they later define, in the celestial kingdom. So it isn't even just three outcomes. The outcomes are as varied as the willingness to obey and repent are varied among God's children. This is a striking change. To me, as a member who grew up in the church my whole life, this idea of degrees of glory based on our willingness and understanding to obey and and really what we want, God gives us what, what we're able to and what we want, it just feels natural. I have a hard time understanding how one act, I was one act of kindness short of going to heaven, but I'm going to be condemned to hell. Like that, that just seems so utterly foreign to me. But in reading this chapter, it seems that some of the saints found this hard to believe. Now, we need to understand that this was the centuries established tradition among Christians. Most Christians believed it was either heaven or hell, and most were going to hell. When Joseph comes to make this vision public and says, no, 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 God is going to give you anything you're willing to accept. He will bless you as much as you'll allow him to bless based on your willingness to obey and repent. People said, that's not in the book. That's not what my priest taught me. That can't be true. And so while some, like the church's editor, William W. Phelps, rejoiced that it was the most wonderful revelation ever to be given to man, others felt This is a fallen prophet. He's not teaching what everybody believes. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book that talks about how the saints and and others understood this new vision, Doctrine and Covenants, Section 76. Back in Ohio, Joseph and Sidney's vision was causing a stir. Many saints quickly embraced the newly revealed truths about heaven, but others had a hard time squaring the vision with their traditional Christian beliefs. Did this new view of heaven save too many souls? A few saints rejected the revelation and left the church. The vision further troubled some of their neighbors who were already bothered by the letters Ezra Booth had published in a local newspaper. As the letters spread Ezra's criticisms against Joseph, other former members of the church joined in, raising questions in the minds of people whose family and friends worshipped with the saints. As you said, uh, Elder Cornish, this is accepted right away by some of the saints, and and they rejoice over it, but it becomes a bit of a 
a stumbling block for, for some of the neighbors. They say, man, these people aren't like us. They're different than us. When you begin with The Living Prophet, Ongoing Revelation, and a new book of scripture, we're already pretty different. When you gather in communities, you strengthen each other, you have social and economic separate separation. This is already a challenge. When you start saying, the Christianity I've always believed may not be entirely correct. It may just be enough to break the camel's back. Not to mention that they're revising the Bible. I mean, the audacity of the prophet to to revise God's holy word. I think we can understand a little bit uh, how these neighbors might have felt, ha- having not understood or, or had a witness for themselves of the truthfulness of the message. Now, I love Brigham Young's response to this. Brigham Young has just been baptized, okay? Shortly, or was baptized just shortly after the vision was received. He said, my traditions were such that when the vision came first to me, it was directly contrary to and opposed to my former education. But he was willing to exercise patience and seek understanding. He said, I used to think and pray, to read and think, until I knew and fully understood it for myself. So even such spiritually potent people as Brigham Young had to step back with the shock of the contrast between what they'd always believed and what they were coming to receive. So it was a challenge to accept for some of the members, and how did they over time come to accept it? I think it's important to recognize that it did take time. That's true for many of us as well as we learn new truths. But particularly in Nauvoo, as Joseph began to teach about the divine nature and potential of mankind, about the eternal value of family relationships, people began to understand the significance of exaltation and celestial glory. But even for one of Joseph's own counselors, William Law, this concept of exaltation of coming to enjoy all the blessings and glory, the knowledge and power and joy that the Father and Son enjoy was so affronting, so concerning, that it made it difficult for them to remain in the church. The message to us today, I think, is that truth isn't truth and falsehood isn't falsehood based on our emotional impressions of it. It's true or not based on whether the Spirit bears witness to our minds, our common sense, our logic, our experience, and our hearts, the witness of the Spirit, about its truth. There need to be as many changes in our attitudes as in our information. And that takes the Spirit. That's a fantastic point. It's a beautiful concept that, that all of us need to remember. To move on in the story here in the chapter, I just want to play a little section here of the book that is a little hard, honestly, to, to, to read, but uh, let's just take a quick listen. Emma was drifting off to sleep when the bedroom door swung open and a dozen men burst into the room. They seized Joseph by the arms and legs and started to drag him from the house. Emma screamed. Joseph thrashed wildly as the men tightened their grip. Someone grabbed him by the hair and yanked him toward the door. Wrenching one of his legs free, Joseph kicked a man in the face. The man stumbled backward and toppled down the doorstep, clutching his bleeding nose. Laughing hoarsely, he scrambled back to his feet and shoved a bloody hand into Joseph's face. "'I'll fix you,' he snarled. 
This is a difficult thing for us to imagine, really. Um, there's certainly violence in the world today, but it's hard to think about Joseph being taken by this mob. Can you tell us a little bit about what the mob did and what happened to Joseph and Sidney on this night? Ben, if you'll allow me, let me first set the stage again. The concept of vigilante response to those who are minorities, those who are different, those who threaten their way of life, was certainly not unique to the neighbor's response to Mormons in various settings. This kind of thing had been going on in the Americas, in, in this new land of America for generations. It's also important to understand that it was not just directed toward Latter-day Saints. Catholics and many others were persecuted, suffered vigilante violence from their neighbors, from people they knew. It's also important to recognize that Mormons were not completely innocent of such behavior themselves. There were at least a few isolated incidents in Missouri in 1838 when the Mormons actually lashed out against their neighbors and took the offensive. Obviously, this was in an attempt to prevent further vigilante violence beyond what they had already extremely suffered. But it was not just the other guys who were at fault in taking these kinds of measures. This was was kind of part of the culture that they were living in. Sadly, this was part of the culture. Now, in this particular event, which was brutal, violent, evil, and tragic, they really did intend to do serious harm, mutilate, or even kill Joseph and Sidney. They dragged Sidney out by his heels across the out of the house and across the earth, banging his head with no protection, and he was left delirious, near dead. So the magnitude of the violence here was quite extreme. When they tried to force a vial of acid into Joseph's mouth, chipping a tooth, which remained chipped the rest of his life, when they uh, were threatening to cut him, when they scratched him and poured hot tar and feathers on him, and when they brutalized Sydney to virtually coma status, this was severe. This was intended to send a message. We don't want Mormons. We don't want your beliefs. Stop doing this. Get out or both. And the same kinds of things were happening in Missouri as well. Edward Partridge, the bishop, and others were tarred and feathered, beaten, threatened. This was terrifying. And when Emma saw Joseph, when he finally had enough strength to to stumble back to the home, bleeding, covered in tar and feathers, and hardly able to speak and breathe. Emma passed out. There's some indication she didn't know who he was at, as, at a distance because he just looked so horrible. It's a, a, a frightening scene. I can't even imagine what might have been going through her mind. They then spent the evening cleaning both Sydney and Joseph up, is that right? And this is the middle of the night. They So they cleaned them up, removed Scraping tar. off the tar and skin and oh. trying to get it out of his mouth. And But they did that so that in the morning he could preach as he had planned to do. Is that right? So in the morning, he goes from being wrapped in a blanket, looking terrible and bleeding and covered, to dressed, obviously scarred, standing on the doorstep of the Johnson home, speaking as planned to the gathered congregation, which included members of the mob. But Joseph said nothing about his prior night's treatment, said nothing against his people, preached the gospel of Christ with love and power by the Spirit. One only can conclude that this is what a disciple of Christ should look like. It is a picture that 
is remarkable and inspiring that rather than lash out or, or point out those who had abused him, he preached. And I love the fact that in the historical record, we learned that there were three people baptized later that day. So despite the hardships, the work rolls forward and con- converts continue to join as they hear the message of the restored gospel. There's another message here that's even harder because it's about us too. The message is, this wasn't about Joseph. This wasn't about getting even or being right. Because it's about exemplifying Christ, preaching Christ, inviting others to Christ. It's useful for us to reflect. This is not about me. This is about God's love for all his children. And anything that I can do personally to help that love change and bless lives. Joseph practiced that. Let's talk about another individual that we meet in in this chapter. This is William McClellan. William's been a missionary. He's been sent off. He gets a little discouraged. And for those who may not have read the chapter yet, William decides he's kind of just had enough. So he he gets a job and and, uh, marries a woman in the, the local congregation. And then he makes a choice. He leaves his mission and he, gets a job and marries the woman. Exactly. <laughs> Not a good idea uh, for a missionary uh, who's been called and been given a responsibility. And then he makes a choice that is rather significant. He decides he's going to go to Missouri with a group of about 100 others. And let me just play a little clip here from the book about this. In time, he chose not to return to his mission. Instead, he married a church member named Emmeline Miller and decided to accompany a group of about a hundred saints to Jackson County, where land was readily available. In a revelation to Joseph, God had rebuked William for abandoning his mission, but William believed he could start over in Zion. He wanted to do it on his own terms, however. In the summer of 1832, he and his company moved to Missouri without a recommendation from church leaders, which the Lord required migrating saints to obtain so that Zion would not grow too quickly and strain resources. When he arrived, he also did not go to Bishop Partridge to consecrate his property or receive an inheritance. Instead, he bought two lots in independence from the government. Help us understand here, what is William doing Incorrectly. I think that's a great question, particularly because I'm so interested to hear your answer, but I think it's a great question because often we don't maybe don't check in with Heavenly Father about what we ought to do next and we assume that we're we're taking correct steps. It seems as though even though he had left his mission, which was a a, a big problem, he was living productively, perhaps. I wonder how we might apply his sort of action to our own feeling about living today. This is such a potent vignette for us. Here's a man who is struggling with his testimony. Often we do that. Here's a man who was concerned about whether Joseph was the prophet. In correspondence with his family and others, he testifies of Joseph. He stands up for him. And then he marries a member and with about 100 people moves to Missouri. One would want to give this man a hug and congratulate him and say, thank you, thank you. You married a good member. You moved to Missouri. You're making the sacrifice to build Zion. One would have to say this is a pretty good example of someone doing all the right things. But there's an important difference between doing the right things our way 
and doing the right things the Lord's way. What William McClellan may not have sensed or understood was that the commandment of the Lord, this was not just Joseph, the commandment of the Lord, that he was to do this through priesthood channels, through proper recommendation, if followed, would allow this saintly, overwhelmed Bishop Partridge and his agent, Sidney Gilbert in Missouri, to organize 100 people on top of the 400 they already had in terms of where they're going to stay and where they're going to live and is there enough food? Do we have enough resources, enough approvals and space and tools to accommodate an additional 100 people? Done in the Lord's way, it could have blessed all concerned, including William and his company. But to do what he probably perceived as a worthy act in his way had disastrous and sad consequences for the entire community. There simply is a difference between doing what we think is okay or even really good in our own way and doing what the Lord has prescribed in the way the Lord has prescribed. This is a hard lesson, and it's a little subtle, but it's really important. Sadly, William bore the fruits of these kinds of decisions. This was a good and very talented, well-educated, intelligent man who later turned enemy to the saints and caused substantial harm because this spirit of doing things his way, believing what he wanted to do, doing what he thought he should do, in direct opposition to the counsel of the Lord through his prophet, caused serious harm to himself and to many others. Looking back, it's easy for us to see what a mistake this was and the harm that it did cause by having these people show up kind of unannounced. It, it created more contention in the local community. You sort of want to go back and just take William and give him a hug and say, just please listen to the prophet <laughs> and get things in order before you go because it's not going to work out. But, uh, of course, uh, we, we can't do that. We have to learn our, our lessons just like William did over time and, and learning line upon line, I suppose. Are there other aspects of this chapter or the topics that were associated with it that you think our listeners would be interested in learning about or discussing today? There is one other thing that I think deserves mention. This, that's the concept of healing and participating in healing among the members, including the sisters. One of the things that the early members of the church teach all of us is the extraordinary power of their faith, and particularly the faith of the sisters. The fact that healing practices were not only central to their faith, but efficacious in the lives of people who suffered with poverty and displacement and poor medical services is a moving part of the the chapter in my assessment. There's a wonderful topic that's associated with this chapter. Our listeners can click through to learn about the, the miraculous healings that occurred and continue to occur in God's church. Our listeners may not be aware that your background um, prior to your full-time service is in the medical field. You're a medical doctor. Are there things that you've learned as you think about the healing practices and the medical practices today and how those, how those continue to work in our lives. I have to say that in my career of some 30 years taking care of very sick babies in, a, in an intensive care nursery, the whole concept of faith and healing has been at the forefront for most of my practice. We often 
would muse among ourselves in the newborn ICU that we were practicing intensive prayer medicine. <laughs> and I love the way that the, the leaders of the church, both in those days and in our day, have combined the application of faith and obedience with the wise and appropriate use of medical resources. The leaders of the church even today have talked extensively about this whole concept, combining both faith and appropriate priesthood ordinances with attention to available medical resources. So, Elder Cornish, in reading this chapter, what would you say are the big takeaways for people like me, millennials, and anybody else who's reading this narrative? This chapter about both marvelous visions and nightmarish experiences has, I think, two take-home messages for all of us that are of saving importance as well as key to our happiness both now and hereafter. The first message is this whole question that the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the vision, raises about what man can hope for after this life. What does God really hold out? Am I going to be good enough to get this? Will I actually make it? Those are key questions that we often struggle with. Let me boldly declare that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our holy, perfectly loving Father will give us everything we want, all the joy, power, glory, knowledge, family, everything we want. The bad news, on the other hand, is that our perfectly loving, merciful, and just Father will give us everything we really want, <laughs> which means if you say you want it, but it, you don't try and you don't repent like you really want it, then he isn't going to force you to get it, to take it. The good news of the gospel is God will give you everything you want. The bad news is he's going to give you what you really want. <laughs> the second message here is this combination of the vigilantism, the persecution, the pain and suffering of sincere people trying to do well, of William McLellan making such serious mistakes with apparently pretty good intentions, highlights the other part of this question of God blessing us, both now in this life and in the next life. And it comes down to, are you willing to do things God's way? Are you willing to have faith in and follow the prophet? Are you willing to bear up under the trials and difficulties of each day and say, I'm not perfect. I don't do it all right, but I'm trying to do it the way God wants me to do it, whatever the persecutions, whatever the hardships may be. And I am willing understand as completely and correctly as I can, both from God's living prophets and from his scriptures, what God wants me to do. And then I'm going to really try. I'm going to seek his help. I'm going to repent as I go. This combination of God offering us with whole commitment everything he has and us striving to receive those blessings by just doing the best we can and repenting each day. That combination can work in our own lives, and it does. Thank you so much for your insights and for your testimony, Elder Cornish. We, we really appreciate uh, you being here with us today, I'm, and I know that our, our listeners will appreciate hearing from you as well. Sarah, thank you for joining us also, and for all of you, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about the Saints Project, you can always visit saints.lds.org. 
where you can explore the latest updates, topics, videos, and more. You can also read or listen to Saints in the Church History section of the Gospel Library app. Finally, to download this episode and to subscribe, visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Thank you.